City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Good morning, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, we're doing something a little bit different this morning because, as we know, Meg is taking the month off and our poor Kevin has fallen ill. Thankfully, he's tested negative for the coronavirus and it's nothing too serious. However, it's affecting his voice, so he's sipping his tea from home today. My name's Karina Ado. I'm usually the producer and I'm joined by Howard Morosi, one of our housing regulars. Hi, Howard. How are you going? Hi, Karina. I'm really well. I'm in, in lockdown at the moment, as everyone else is, and I'm not working. So um, I'm not going to complain. You're at your leisure. I am. <laughs> That's a good thing. I actually spent five hours yesterday working on this. So as usual, I'm still doing a lot of unpaid work. Yes, aren't we all? And, and everyone down at the station as well is our magnificent team of staff and uh, countless volunteers at 3CR doing a wonderful job keeping us all on air, all chugging along. Now considering the fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants radio that uh, is community broadcasting, we are doing something a little bit different today. So I've also been producing reruns of The Gardening Show that airs on Sunday morning. So I've been really enjoying sitting down and listening to, because I studied mycology and botany, it's nice to sit down and listen to things in my area of interest, you know, practical things and even, even more academic things that perhaps slipped past you in university. Um, we did want to make a bit of an announcement this morning. Paddy Garrity, a very active member of the Unemployed Workers' Union in Tasmania and many other projects in Victoria, one of the people who reinvigorated trades halls, bars and theatres, um, passed away on Sunday morning. So we did want to remember him on the show and... I, I believe he lived with Kevin for a little bit, actually. Really? I didn't, didn't know that. Yeah, so it's very sad, but we thought we'd, we'd mention it. Were you sad that he had to live with Kevin? or? <laughs> Sorry, Kevin, if you're listening from home. All righty. So moving right along then, let's talk housing. What updates do you have for us today, Howard? Yeah, so housing. Brenda, apology. Firstly, um, I normally get a lot of my information from the age, but unfortunately, my source of the age is dried up. I used to get it from work, so now I'm off work because of the COVID situation. I can't get much of the age except what I happen to see accidentally online on other friends' pages and stuff. Um, so it's it's crikey. I, I get crikey, and uh, what I see on our Facebook pages for the different public housing groups. So it's there's still a heap of stuff. Mm. So I'll start with um, the, the state government announcement. In late July, they announced that they were going to give $150 million to allow 2,000 homeless people to stay in hotels until 
um, at least April 2021. The government's going to lease 1,100 properties from the private sector for when those homeless people have to leave the hotels. They say it's the first of the promised 1,000 social housing units. They're going to assist with bond and initial expenses under the private rental assistance program. Uh, and they're going to give help to those homeless people in hotels for mental health, drug and alcohol, rehabilitation, family violence. It's going to be done by funding the homeless agencies. So obviously it's a good thing that they're doing that. But it'd be much better if it was done through the department itself and they actually had a proper, uh, properly funded sector to do that. And of course, the main thing is there's no promise of public housing. It's just social housing, which is probably going to be community housing which is no good for the homeless people because it means that they're not, most of them or a lot of them will not be eligible or will lose their place, probably lose their place, could lose their place where the units are managed by housing associations where we know that they would be guaranteed tenure with proper public housing. So just a question about that, Howard. So with the 1,100 properties that they're looking to lease, Privately, that's after hotel stays. Yeah. So that's the transition from hotel stays into private housing. Yeah. So some properties will be actual social housing. Right. I'm not quite sure how that fits in with the uh, 1,100 properties they're leasing from the private sector, whether they count that as part of their promised 1,000 social housing. It's not clear. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see about that. So... With the recent Towers lockdown, Mm. a few things came out of that. So there was a fellow called Matt Lawson on uh, YouTube who uh, was following the the lockdown and uh, went down to the uh, site and did some some live crosses. And he's got a lot of followers. So he actually, when he looked at the Towers, he actually found some information about the privatisation plans in relation to um, some of those, those properties. And um, he got 26,000 views and nearly 500 likes uh, when he discovered about the public housing renewal program and queried privatisation. So someone's someone's just stumbled on the issue of uh, public housing renewal program and he's got already 26,000 views. So congratulations, Matt Lawson. (laughs) You've done a lot better than we have. I I, I think despite all the years we've spent, I I think we'd be struggling to say we've got any near 26,000 views for our information. So um, it looks like the public housing renewal program has pretty much come to a standstill, except for uh, Grand Place in West Brunswick, Preston and Walker Street. Uh, North Melbourne has, um, the demolition's been halted because they've found asbestos in the site. Mm. And there's an issue that they may actually have to pay compensation, state government may have to pay compensation to MAB, the developer, if there's a delay beyond uh, the end of this year. So there's an issue as to whether, of course, the public housing should have been demolished at all. So the government really has never analysed any of the estates to see if the properties are capable of being saved and renovated. And we believe that, at least in some cases, for example, um, we're pretty sure Walker Street, uh, Northcote, was one site where the public housing was actually in good condition mm. and didn't need demolition. Of course, also Ascot Vale yes. um, is pretty much strongly believed to be in sound structural condition 
but that may not have been the case with North Melbourne. I, I, I went through North Melbourne when we were trying to resist the government plans to include that in public housing renewal program. And one of the residents had, had experience in the building trade and he thought that there was so much cracking in the um, structures of the, a lot of the units that most of the blocks couldn't have been saved. Maybe only three out of, I think about 13 might have been saved. But that wasn't an expert opinion. Like they never, ever got mm. an expert opinion because they never wanted to save them. Yeah. Were they low-rise blocks, the Walker Street blocks? Uh, Walker Street, yeah, they were they were three, yep. three story and two two and three story. I think it was the same with North Melbourne, mm. and it's the same with Ascot Vale. Um, they're all you know like medium, what we call medium density, but they're going to be replaced with um, high rise. Yep, you know six, ten. I think in our case of Ascot Vale, at one stage they were talking about fifteen, maybe stories. So uh, as we say, there's not a lot happening with the other estates included in the public housing renewal program so uh, we do know that there's more plans other estates are being included now so uh, there's a public housing estate in west preston now i don't really have a lot of information about it but there is plans to demolish that estate it might actually be houses i'm not sure and then rebuild with a normal uh, program which will probably be you know mainly private housing and also um, privately uh, managed social housing. Mm. So what's happened there is that the uh, Darabin Greens have actually put a resolution through council via the Deputy Mayor Suzanne Newton that the new development should be at least 50% social housing. And, you know, we're disappointed that they have firstly put it in terms of social housing when we know, you know, the Greens have actually got a policy in Victoria of distinguishing between public housing and community housing, not using the umbrella term of social housing, which is a cloak used by the state government and by various other groups to disguise privatisation plans. Mm-hmm. And we're also disappointed they're only asking for 50% instead of 100%, as we say, public housing, because it buys into the state government argument that you know it's necessary to have mix between private and public housing. As we've said many times, it may well be that a mix is a good option, but we don't actually have the money being spent at the moment to get anywhere near solving our backlog, our waiting list of public housing, which is getting probably close to 100,000 people now. Mm. So any building of private housing where on, on estates which are now 100% public housing or with money which could go to public housing means that there's less public housing that's going to be built and there's going to be a longer waiting period for those on the waiting list if they're ever going to get public housing. Mm, that's it. A mix would be good if there was an adequate amount of public housing. Yeah. And that's something that would affect maybe even the private housing market. It would make it, would make it fair. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's simply not enough. Exactly. And the other arguments, I mean, you know, the whole argument about the need for mix comes from, I believe, the USA in the 1970s and the, you know there's there's a lot of problems there in terms of crime and, and other associated activities but i don't know enough to say whether a lot of that was merely a lot of that discussion was merely justification for demolishing their public housing over there or whether there was validity 
for the analysis, but it's it's definitely not valid here. You know, like we know that where it's 100% public housing here, very strong communities, people uh, like living there in the main. Indeed. And uh, that, that argument just doesn't really stack up here. So apart from that, there's another local council which has now become involved in the situation in a state government tactic, really. So the state government has been refusing to build public housing, as we know, and local councils want to actually help the homeless. So local councils are being pressured by the state government and some are even actually going to the state government and saying we've got all this spare land, we want to help the homeless. Um, This has happened with the Melbourne City Council, it's happened with Port Phillip Council and also Darabin Council. And Port Phillip Council has been offered and they've accepted an offer by the state government to um, go into partnership with Housing First, the housing association, and uh, build 46 what they call affordable housing apartments. Mm. Um, I don't know if you heard about that, but it's an old uh, it's a car park. Now, as far as I can tell, I, I can't find from in any of the uh, announcements exactly where the car park is, but I know of one major car park in Balaclava, which is the one just off Carlisle Street and Nelson Street on the back of the coals there. So what's planned is whatever car park is, and I think it's probably that one, they're going to uh, build underneath, they're going to excavate the site, build a car park underneath the current site, and on top of it where the car park is now, they're going to build 46 affordable housing apartments, and it's going to cost $22 million. So it's a lot of money. It's going to be council-owned land rather than state government land. But again, you know, if they're going to do this, it should be set aside for public housing not affordable housing. And as we know, affordable housing doesn't even necessarily mean community housing. Affordable housing could be like what the uh, federal government under Rudd was promoting, uh, which is privately owned, not even owned by a housing association, but owned by a landlord. And all they've got to do is provide rent uh, at 80% of what's called the market uh, for 10 years. So it could even conceivably be that. And as Libby Porter said, a guest from a couple of weeks ago, 80% of unaffordable is still unaffordable, Yeah. typically. So that, that term itself is, is meaningless in a legal sense. Yeah, that's right. And you weigh it up against what public housing is. Public housing is not set in terms of percentage of market. It's set in terms of percentage of the tenants. Income, exactly. Yeah, and 25% is below what's regarded as uh, rental stress. Anyway, so they're talking about uh, there's going to be a mix of tenants, including people over 55 and people with a disability. Yep. Twin key apartments, which are two neighbouring apartments with an additional shared entrance. I don't know about that, but it sounds like they're trying to save on space. Will provide more space for larger families or a second room if a tenant requires a carer. So the project is funded through the state government's $2.7 billion building works package which includes $500 million for public and community housing initiatives. So again, we're not seeing money coming through for public housing. Mm. You know, and all that $2.7 billion could build a lot of public housing. So again, unfortunately, the local council probably not particularly you know, sympathetic to public housing anyway. We're seeing local councils being pressured to support the state government policy here on the basis that they're going to help the homeless people and people who are... Uh, in need of housing, whereas we know it's not what is needed. 
and by the sounds of it, it seems like a really wishy-washy way to um to to meet people's needs. I know I know people have been demanding it uh, or raising this as an issue for a very long time, but the the replacement of public housing with multiple rooms for families by social housing uh, with less bedrooms for more typically single self-sufficient people. It seems like the the reason why they raise that is because they've actually heard people saying that this is an issue. Yeah, we've seen that response by the state government. They they do monitor what's being said by their critics Mm. and they do then pretty much just, you know, change the spin really without really addressing the issues yeah they'll make an announcement often the announcements aren't followed up or the wording so vague that it's really a meaningless promise and most of the time they don't really address the issue they just come along and just address one point and then make it look like they're um, doing such great things just a typical public relations tactic without getting to the basis of the problem a mm, couple of hot little buzzwords and yeah yeah so you're listening to city limits here with karina and howard We're talking about housing issues and we're just going to go for a break. Stay tuned. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Back on City Limits, I'm speaking with Howard Morosi today from Friends of Public Housing, who's giving us a rundown on housing news for this month. So what else have we got? We've got, uh, I might chop and change a bit here. Uh, That's fine. uh, Triple J has been covering the situation for young renters. They've found that half young renters are now struggling under the COVID lockdown because of the loss of work. They're being asked to make up redu- any reductions in rent they get after the lockdown finishes. Mm. So across Australia, one in seven young renters are struggling, which is doubling what it was previously. Uh, very few are asking for help, which they, we know that they're now entitled to ask for. So the state government has set up a system for rent reduction and rent moratorium. But at the first instance, they actually have to go to the landlord to ask for it and few landlords are actually giving them what they're, what they're asking for in terms of reduction in rent. Mm. And a lot of them are afraid of, they really don't know their rights. So it's kind of like the onus has been put back on the renter. It would be nice for the state government to come out and really run a lot of publicity about this and, and become more proactive in terms of representing renters instead of putting the onus on them. And there's also the fact that uh, the state government hasn't gotten rid of the no grounds eviction. Mm-hmm. So that was proposed to come into effect before the COVID lockdown started. But the state government has now delayed those reforms until 2021. So there's going to be a gap after COVID. So the um, moratorium protections for the renters actually expires in at the end of September of this year. And there's a, there's a gap between the end of September and whenever next year the government introduces new protections against no-ground evictions. And that's a problem 
because uh, landlords can then get rid of people for no grounds. So, you know, they might have deferred their rents. They might have asked for a deferral in rent and the landlord doesn't like that. So it's really opened up renters for victimisation by landlords. Mm. And we say moratorium in, in inverted commas anyway because there have been cases of people having to leave and, and it going to VCAT who historically don't always land on the side of the renter rather than the, the landlord themselves. Just anecdotally, I have a friend who has had issues with black mould for a really long time in their house and also carbon monoxide heater that they've been in contact with their landlord about since the start of winter and they've continuously refused to pay because it's been too expensive, less expensive, mind, than the uh, monthly rent paid collectively by that household. So they've put it off and put it off and they've been living without a heater and then they raised the issue in an email recently about the black mould and they got sent a very generic email from the real estate agent pretty much dobbing in themselves because they had a giant list of very important things that should be attended to by the landlord within 24 hours and on that list was uh, heating. So they've gone on a rent strike and best of luck to them but it's Mm. funny how much power and weaseling out of things uh, landlords can actually do yeah well they've got the um they own the property and they've got the protection of the law on their side as well exactly and they've a lot of them have got a lot of money too to pay for lawyers and not heaters <laughs> oh, yeah that's right so it's interesting because um a rent strike is dangerous you know like even with the yep. state government uh, reforms under covid you're still obliged to pay your rent so it's a risky thing to do. And it would actually be interesting to hear from uh, Shane McGrath again, actually, as to whether there'd been any more cases going through VCAT. Yeah. Because he had one case. And it'd be interesting to hear if there were more cases which actually came up with a different result uh, in favour of the tenant this time instead of in, in favour of the landlord. Mm. You know, I guess we'll have to wait and see for that. There is actually a, a parliamentary inquiry into the government's handling of COVID at the moment, uh, not just in relation to rentals, but VCOS and, and Tenants Victoria have made submissions to it. And there's been an interim report issued by the parliamentary inquiry. So Tenants Victoria noted a 400% increase in people contacting their organisation after COVID started. and uh, Many of uh, which were tenants actually being issued with notices to vacate after telling their landlord they'd lost their jobs. Mm. So um, by mid-May, 15,000 people had contacted Consumer Affairs Victoria to inquire about residential um, tenancies. And by early July, there were close to 18,000 reduced rent agreements lodged through Consumer Affairs Victoria under the new state government moratorium scheme that's a lot of people being helped that's about three percent of the total number of households renting wow so it's not clear as to how many would need to have asked for a rent reduction because a lot of people would be on JobKeeper and and the double job seeker so they might actually be able to afford it so we're still not clear as to how much of those in need have been helped mm. so there were about nine thousand disputes regarding the rental tenancies, um, which were handled by Consumer Affairs. And it only took about six days to finalise those. 
about 600 matters were then referred to the uh, resolution officer for mediation. And that took another 22 days on average to resolve those. So it gives you an idea of, you know, there's a lot of people being helped and it gives you amount, an idea of the amount of time. So it's not a long time because, you know, things can take a long time in the legal system. Mm. So it's six days to close a case, 22 days to resolve the dispute. You know, it's, it's quite quick. And I think they've actually increased the number of staff in consumer affairs to handle the disputes. That was going back a while. That's, that's going back to May. And there might have been more cases, a lot more cases since then. It would be a lot nicer to see more cases of this being spoken about in the mainstream because, <laughs> you know, as we probably know, these numbers are pretty huge, but they probably don't touch yeah. the real amount of people who put up with, frankly, crappy conditions and grin and bear it. Yeah, so if anyone out there, I'm sure we've got a lot of private renters out there, if you've got any mm. cases you want to tell us about, I guess you can always get in touch with... Uh, to specifically, you mean uh, Friends of Public Housing? Yeah, or you could go to the Friends of Public Housing Facebook page, if you like, to send, send a message through and ask for it to be put to my attention, Howard's attention, because um, it would be good to get a lot more information about this from people that aren't being heard, as you say. Mm, certainly. They did find that the average we weekly rental decrease through consumer affairs was about 27% or $155 a week per agreement which is quite substantial. Figures like this make me think, though, like what benefit does a landlord have to kick someone out if they've lost their job in times like these? Like I can't imagine there are a lot of people crawling over each other to rent, you know, a regular house at maximum price. Yeah, no, there wouldn't be. We know that we know rents have come down. So, um, yeah, they must... They must have thought, well, this person's going to pay virtually nothing, so I'll get my get someone else in. They might pay a little bit less or the same as what I'm getting now. It's hard to know, really. What goes through people's heads? Yeah. So Tenants Victoria says it's too early to determine um, whether the needs of renters were being met because it was, it was only operating for a couple of weeks at the time of the public hearings, uh, which are going on. So... Down the track, we'll get more information from the parliamentary inquiry, which I'll keep you updated about. Mm. They did say, Tennis Victoria did tell the parliamentary inquiry that prior to the state government tenancy law changes, landlords and real estates were frequently refusing to negotiate with tenants. And um, some were requesting excessive personal and financial information or suggesting that tenants use their superannuation to pay for rent or agreed to defer or reduce rent only if the tenants sign a new fixed-term lease or agree to waive their rights mm. under the law. It's hardly surprising, unfortunately, isn't it? Yeah. But the fact that they did say that that was the case before the tenancy law changes suggests that the law changes actually have benefited the tenants in this situation to some degree. Now, the, the inquiry made looked into the situation with family violence and just a bit of background, so family violence affects about 20% of women. It's a leading cause of death and disability, and it, it spikes, family violence spikes during a time of natural disasters such as COVID. Um, the state government gave $40 million for crisis accommodation and services during the COVID period, although the organisation Domestic Violence Victoria noted that um, the state government's short-term funding 
has over the past four years made it hard to retain experienced staff. So again, some some improvement over COVID, but unfortunately, it comes against a background of pretty poor funding by the state government. Mm. Uh, you're with Karina and Howard, and we're talking about housing issues on city limits. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Now, the towers locked down. There's now an ombudsman inquiry. So uh, the residents of one of the towers at 33 Alfred Street in North Melbourne uh, was in lockdown for nearly a fortnight, guarded by a large police presence, and there were reports of food going undelivered. <laughs> However, there were 250 COVID cases linked to the public housing towers in North Melbourne and, and Flemington. Um, because last month when we talked about it, we believed that it was only something like 60 cases and only one of the towers which was affected. Yeah. So eight of the nine towers reverted to stage three restrictions with the rest of Melbourne and Alfred Street remained in self-quarantine because it recorded more cases than the other buildings. The Ombudsman, Ms Glass, noted that during a global health emergency, governments had to act swiftly but not at the cost of basic human rights. So the Ombudsman will be looking into, you know, denial of things like access to fresh air, the excessive police presence and uh, uh, the um, inappropriateness of the food being allowed in. There was also a report done by one of the legal organisations and um, it really noted some pretty poor administration by the police and the state emergency service of the procedures there. So the uh, Muslim Social Service Association was often provided with in incorrect information about the delivery of food, so that often food was not delivered in a timely way or at all, mm. increasing health risks and potential cross-contamination, food wastage. There's also a lack of recognition of AMSA, the uh, Muslim Social Services Association, as legitimate supplies of food, which led to an altercation and one of the AMSA volunteers being arrested. Yep. They were required constantly to negotiate rather than having one-off recognition of the validity of their, of their service until the point where in early July they were accepted and they were thanked by the Minister Lisa Neville for the relief they were providing. So again, the, the Department, is, Department of um, Health and Human Services is actually not being administered well. Mm. And the state government has to take responsibility for that. You know, it's like, it's not good enough. We do need state government services and they need to be administered by the state government. And um, if they're not doing a good enough job, the minister has to actually look into why they're not and either provide the funding or replace the people that are running the department. It's either lack of funding or it's, it's poor administration. And the minister has to take responsibility. And as you say, you know, mainstream media 
should be calling calling the government to account, but they're not, unfortunately. No. Another thing that I think might be interesting to note here as well that I, I guess is reflected in the legal organisations in the area talking about poor administration of police and things like that is when we spoke with one of the residents and indeed when Meg and I watched a forum that had lots of residents speaking, there was the indication that there was containment of the virus within the buildings but not between flats within the buildings. So we saw this huge number of cases, these people locked into this 33 Alfred building, but also who knows what's happened inside in terms of spreading, in terms of public health. It seemed as if they were treating it more as a public health crisis to the greater community rather than a public health crisis to the communities we know exist within the public housing sphere. Yeah. So what? So in other words, what should the government have done to stop the spread between? So you mean the spread of COVID potentially between the re, from one apartment to another? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. So some of the reports were about the way the DHHS was giving food, for example, and they they'd leave it all in the foyer and say, "Come down when you wish," and not have any sanitizer or any timing with which they brought it to people or bringing it to people at all. What was it? The faulty elevator in one of the buildings that I think it was actually being renovated. Like it wasn't faulty per se but they were updating it or something like just a whole suite of things like the, the management of public housing in the first place yeah the way that they were locked down because we know that police aren't public health experts at all yeah and plenty of organizations were putting their hands up to say you know we can help with this yeah well again it's dhhs mm-hmm. at fault in as you said not organizing for people to come down separately mm. you know that's that's just you know pathetic administration by dhhs that's a basic thing you know like if you're trying to stop it you're right if you're trying to stop the spread then you make sure people come down separately you would have a roster or you'd actually as you say deliver to their door and very very poor dissemination of health information and legal information yeah. as well between all the residents but yes, it is. It it was, it was a bit of a disgrace, wasn't it? Yeah. To put it lightly. Yeah. Again, it's you know like, but I don't want to hear people saying, oh well, you know, therefore we've got to privatise DHHS and give everything to some private organisation because that's not a solution either. No. The solution is to make government accountable for its poor administration. You know, we do know that the Greens and the Socialists are constantly um, lobbying against both ALP and, and Liberal Party maladministration and they should be more given more of a voice as political you know parties involved in the political process but they're not so again it's a failure generally of the mainstream institutions in our society to identify problems and then identify solutions and and make and put pressure to make sure those solutions are done instead they just you know like we're talking about talking about mainly mainstream media and we're talking about uh i guess even a lot of academia you know they're not really sufficiently involved in really finding out what's happening uh, on the ground and then getting involved in organizations that are going to put pressure for change Mm. 
there were also problems in relation to the towers there were problems with the uh, legal observers so the uh, legal observers actually were exempt from the um, COVID restrictions and they were actually um, intimidated by police and told contrary to their rights that they weren't didn't have a right to be there and the police wouldn't actually uh, engage them when they were trying to assert their rights and contradict what the police were saying and they were you know trying to stop their ability to record interactions or when I say they we, we may only be talking about a couple of police but they were the police given responsibility to administer the um, attempts by the legal observers to attend they were given a move on order from police denied entry to 33 Alfred Street without clear explanation of why, threatened with fines if they returned to the site. And um, once the um, lockdown was lifted, the police continued to maintain a, a presence to impose stage three restrictions. And the observers say that this type of proactive policing is incompatible with notions of public health and safety and under, undermines residents' rights. In other words, after the lockdown had been lifted because the estates were then under the same restrictions as the, as the rest of Melbourne. Mm. So that's, I would think that would be taken up with the Ombudsman as well. So in relation to the towers, the, the state government announced that all tower residents who don't work would receive a $750 hardship payment. And there actually there was actually controversy over that as well. A current affair, as we were just saying, sensationalised the thing they actually found one resident who uh, refused to take the test and they were then allegedly told by the department that they would get $750 if they took the test, whereas they were supposed to get the, t the money even if they didn't take the test. So, again, it's a small thing and it really doesn't focus on the main issue or the main issues in relation to the towers. I did hear another thing from some of the residents. Uh, they were saying that originally they were promised $750 worth of a hardship payment per resident and then later were told that only one person per unit was eligible, Yeah. which honestly, it's nowhere near enough, is it? No, because um, that, you know, that was for, well, it was for, the lockdown went for, I think, a week in the case of most of the towers and maybe two weeks in relation to Alfred Street. Yeah. So apparently it was $750 a household if no one was working in the household, but if there was one or more residents working, they would get $1,500. Right. So that was a bit more, probably a bit more realistic. But again, it wasn't really so much the money. Maybe, maybe some residents missed out more money than that, but it wasn't really the money that residents were complaining about. It was the way they were treated denial of human rights, heavy handedness, all that sort of stuff. Exactly. And just bad administration by the department, exposing them to, to COVID. So Tim Reid, the Greens MP for Brunswick, wrote to the minister and the minister then made some good announcements in relation to um, protecting the residents. So in relation to Brunswick, the Brunswick uh, public housing tower, the government's now promised hand sanitizers on every floor, going to be topped up several times a day. Frequently touched surfaces like door handles will be cleaned five times a day with a thorough clean of the building once a week. Masks will be given to every occupant. And Tim Reid wrote to uh, the minister just the week prior to that. So it was a good response. Hopefully it's been done. Haven't heard yet if it's been carried out. Hopefully it's being done in more apartment blocks than just the Brunswick. Yeah, well, you would think not because otherwise we would have probably heard an announcement about it. 
Exactly. No, I've heard nothing else from other estates either. They've even promised um, a concierge desk on the ground floor with a nurse and social worker, people coming into the building. So anyway, I'll keep an eye on what happens with Tim Reed and, and see if, there's, if that's actually followed up. We also heard recently, just in the last few days, that the Brunswick, the Brunswick public housing high-rise, which I think is the one located at the back of Jewel Station, housing about, there's about 400 flats there and it's for people over 55. They were all tested for COVID and there was not one negative test. Positive or negative? They're all, well, no one's got COVID. Not one negative test, you scared me. That's a positive thing. They're all negative for COVID. Yep. Just to um, clarify that. We've, we've also got um, someone in Northcote who's asked several times for the um, DHHS to uh, put hand sanitizers outside the lift and they're still waiting. So, again, you know, it looks like, you know, just a response where attention's been given, the government will respond, but they're not being proactive. Yeah, we know these are things that tenants have been asking for for a long time in various yeah. public... It's not as if... It's not as if people who live in giant blocks of towers once the pandemic hit don't realise what the, their specific dangers or needs are, you know? Yeah. These people are some of the best organised and well-connected communities yeah. that we know. Yeah. And do not get the credit for it. Yeah. Alrighty, so I think that concludes City Limits for this week. Uh, my name's Karina. Thanks for joining me today, Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing. See you next time. Now, we're going to leave you with some audio from last month's Wednesday Breakfast Show with David Kelly, a research fellow at the Centre for Urban Research, RMIT, discussing some of Melbourne's historical factors and policy leading to the public housing lockdown in July. We'll be back with you on City Limits next Wednesday at 9am. In the past few weeks, 3CR's been quite closely following what's happening in the tower lockdowns in North Melbourne and Flemington. But in parallel, there's also a much-needed discussion on the slow-folding tragedy that is occurring in our cities in relation particularly to undersupplied public housing. And so to help us unpack this, joining us we have David Kelly, a research fellow at the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub and the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT. David, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. You've stated that in order for Australia to meet the public housing shortfall in Australia, we would need to build 100 public dwellings every day for the next 20 years. How have we ended up in this situation? Mm, Yeah, good question. Well, I I suppose if you want to take a historical perspective, it probably started close to 70 years ago. In the immediate period after World War II, in order to accommodate a lot of returning servicemen and women, we built a whole bunch of public stock and we built it with quality in mind and uh, longevity. So a lot of these dwellings have actually stood the test of time. Um, And under this, we had an agreement between the Commonwealth and state government called the Commonwealth State Housing Agreement, which basically mandated each state government to build in um, enormous quantities public housing. And this continued up until about 1956, where we had this one minor change to that um, agreement, which allowed state governments to sell the stock to the private sector. So 
this didn't kick in immediately. Throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s, we were still building a lot of public housing stock in, in great quantities and keeping pace. But then in the 70s, 80s, 90s, we started moving towards a different type of economic model, what today we might refer to as neoliberal economics, where basically the state wants to see its role in providing essential social infrastructure reduced. They would prefer to leave it to this, the uh, private sector. And so we've had this kind of wide-scale program of privatization where we've been act actively getting rid of stock and leaving the private sector to um, basically coordinate the provision of affordable and low-income housing, which, of course, they're unable to do or there isn't actually any incentive for them to do. So that's kind of um, the broad brush um, explanation as to why we're here, how did we get here. Um, but here is actually a good time to be. We have a moment now where we can harness some of the exposure that's been drawn to the public housing shortages and, and the issues. But whether or not we take that up is another question altogether. I guess also looking at the statistics that we're seeing of the of the shortfall, and as you say, this is perhaps an opportune time to really think about investing more in public housing. And we, we have seen some announcements in various states across Australia, but it is quite an overwhelming number to look at. So how can we use this opportunity now to start closing that gap? Mm, um, we, need, we need to really shift a lot of frames of thinking about things. Um, one of the things that emerged over the last 30, 40 years is the supremacy of home ownership. Um, we've shifted away from this idea that the community can provide essential community resources and, and shifted it towards um, private ownership. And housing just isn't a very um, compatible, lively infrastructure and to facilitate that shift. So there's one thing that Australia does pretty well. Um, we do pretty good housing economics research. And so we know that the most cost-effective way of providing low-income housing, public housing, is for direct capital investment by the government. This is the best bang for buck. So the state government needs to build en masse public housing and the federal government needs to fund it, basically. This would involve actually breaking down some of the logics that our various treasury departments operate on, which is these kind of short-term economic cycles, and think about housing as this long-term economic asset that provides an essential infrastructure for the community. So that's one thing, capital, cap, direct capital investment into a build program which aims to meet and extinguish the demand on every single public housing waitlist around the country. The second thing is to abandon the privatisation of the stock that we already have. So currently the Victorian government is rolling out a public housing renewal programme, which is removing public housing from inner city areas. So there's 11 estates within inner city Melbourne that are currently um, being decanted. So people have been relocated, displaced. They're being demolished and then they're being rebuilt in higher density with a minimum of, on balance, 70% um, private housing. And then the other 30% would be community housing, which isn't the same as public housing. It's actually not-for-profit, but private. 
So this um, provides an extremely modest uplift on those estates to about 10% on top of what was already there. But there's a decrease in the amount of bedrooms. So actually each of these 11 estates will only be able to accommodate, will be able to accommodate less low-income residents than what was there before. So this renewal program is said to provide a whole bunch of new housing, but in what you get in units and uplift, you decrease bedrooms and therefore reduce the capacity of these sites. So that's another thing, abandon the renewal programs that are currently being rolled out by the state um, to invest in maintenance so that the majority of the aging public housing stock doesn't run into obsolescence and then become uninhabitable. So there's a bunch of housing around Melbourne and Victoria more generally that could still be fit for purpose if it was maintained, if there was an actual maintenance budget that could meet the expectations of 21st century living. But for decades now, particularly the Victorian government have been divesting from maintenance. Um, So we invest the least amount of money in maintenance than any other state in Australia. So maintenance, abandoned renewal programs and direct capital investment in a public housing build program. I guess the other point to that is obviously there's a lot of the apartments have fallen to as a state of disrepair and that's related to the maintenance policies. The other question is, do we actually have to build, physically build all these hundreds of thousands of dwellings or can we retrofit and work with the existing housing stock? Is there enough housing stock accounting for obviously future population growth to work with what we already have? This is a, this is, um, a question that's quite complex because Plan Melbourne, which is the kind of primary planning document for the Victorian government, estimates that we will need 1.6 million dwellings by the year 2035 in order to meet our population growth. So we need dwellings. The city is growing, the state is growing, and we do need dwellings. But if we cast our minds back to the last state election, there was figures going around that there was over 80,000 vacant dwellings in metropolitan Melbourne that were held in private hands. So we actually have enough private dwellings that are sitting vacant to house everyone who's homeless in the state, but there's a mismatch in values. So we, we value a vacant private property more than we do housing a homeless person. So there's a sh- broader shift in values that needs to take place if we, if we didn't really want to build anything. But yes, we actually still need to build in order to meet the future population growth. In terms of the public housing stock, yes, there is a need for more dwellings to be built. Um, We do need to accommodate the 40-something thousand applications that are on the wait list, which then roughly equates to 100,000 people. Um, And the only way we can do that is by building more rather than actually knocking them down, which is what we're doing. The other thing is that we have a lot of public we have a lot of public land that's sitting in public tenure around the city that's currently being sold off in mass. So this sort of public land should be the program of actually selling that public land should be stopped and public housing should be built directly on that land because it's cost effective because you're not paying for the land. Um, 
interest rates are at the lowest they've ever been, so you can borrow, you can go into debt to actually do it. Um, and so there's there's a numerous shifts that need to happen in order just to provide and meet capacity. And I imagine many of the similar issues, these are the same issues happening in London and various other cities across the world in terms of the the balance of empty apartments and then balance with the number of people who actually need those apartments as well. I guess also thinking more globally, are we seeing examples or have you seen examples of where public housing procurement has been done particularly well? There's two points to make on this. Yes, we can look globally and we can say there are models that work much better than our one. In the OECD, Victoria ranks right down the bottom in terms of public housing provision. So we are the biggest loser. So we could literally look anywhere around the world and they're doing it better. Um, Singapore is a good example where 80 to 85% of their total housing stock was either built by the government or is in government hands now. So a huge proportion is either subsidized or decommodified to some extent. Um, the U.S. do it much better than us too. I mean, in some places there's over 20% public housing in, in some um, regions of the U.S., um, Of course, all of these sorts of Western countries are moving away from the public housing model um, and residualizing that particular tenure to an extent that it only accommodates the very, very, very needy, which we think that that needs to be expanded considerably so that anyone who wants public housing can have it, no matter what your income is. The second thing is that we actually do it pretty well and we have the capacity to do it pretty well. So we just have to look at our history when we've done it before. So we've done it very well here before, especially in Victoria. We had a massive um, slum clearance model, which built a whole bunch of public housing. Um, we need to reinstate a clause within our national housing agreement framework that says you can't sell public stock to the private sector. That will prevent the leaking. And we need to actually harness the expertise that we have in this country. So housing economics, like I said, we're very good at that. We know what the most cost-effective model is. We have a very good construction industry who can do this, who need to be put back to work in these sorts of times where we have economic downturns. So why not get them to do public housing? We also have very good building standards and apartment standards here, which would provide really up-to-date 21st century living standards to the people who need it most. So we don't have to look far, but, you know, if we do look anywhere, it's, it's surely better than Victoria. The other impact to all of this, in particular the shortfall, is the, the ongoing stigmatised narrative surrounding public housing residents. And that has also come to the fore in the last few weeks as well with, with how many of the residents are being portrayed. What are some ways that we can try to shift that narrative? The biggest issue with the stigmatisation of public housing spaces and residents, it's not other people in the community actively deriding them or um, wrapping them up in negative connotations. It's the government itself. Um, It's the structure that provides the housing. So if we actually maintained those properties and we actually invested in them, we wouldn't be experiencing this sort of... um, narrative of decline around these spaces. So we have this situation at the minute where because so many of these estates are unmaintained, they attract negative sorts of narratives and commentary from various government. The other thing that I would say is 
because the proportion of public housing to general housing stock has declined for decades now, and there's less public housing now than there was 10 years ago, it means that the people who live in public housing have become hyper-marginalized over time. So in order to get into public housing, you need to be in a really bad situation. That wasn't always the case. Um, majority of people who are in public housing um, in mid-century were, were not people who experienced homeless or severe mental and emotional trauma, um, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. You know, it was, it was a general population tenure and it was legitimate in that way. Over time and over decades, we've marginalized it so much that the only sorts of people who occupy that space now have so many compounding and intersecting needs that it's easy for others and for the government to point to them and say they're the problem. So in order to destigmatize it, we need to change the structure around it. Not so much the people. The people are, are doing the best they can. It's the structures that sit around them that need to change. So we need an expansion of the stock so that, the, so that those who occupy public housing aren't all competing for the same sorts of resources at the margins. And also to maintain these properties so that they don't attract these sorts of negative, negative commentaries so that they are of a standard that fit the utopian ideals on which they were built. It's really a self-fulfilling prophecy of the lack of investment stigmatizes it and then that further stigmatizes the people within it and then that contributes to less funding or less public interest and in then seeing the value investing in it. So it's really becoming a bit of a, a downward spiral, unfortunately. Yeah. Totally. It's a closed circle and it needs to, someone needs to step in and intervene. Well, David, thank you very much for sharing your research and work in this space. No worries. Thanks for, thanks for having me. If you're just joining us, that was an interview by Rob Snelling from Wednesday Breakfast with David Kelly, a research fellow at the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub and the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT. Stay tuned for Anarchist World this week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.